This evening's talk is about equanimity. And we'll begin uh, with a few moments as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with the Bodhisatta, this just about to be Buddha on that now famous night as he was protected within the great strength of his mindful presence. So allowing yourself to relax in your seat, close your eyes. And as though we're in Bodh Gaya, sitting under that huge Bodhi tree with the just about to be Buddha. <clears throat> as he was protected with the great strength of his mindful presence which was enlivened by a keen interest and a penetrating sense of exploration, investigation, accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and the flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gautama sitting under the bow tree that night with an unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive, open-hearted presence, as though he were an immovable mountain, the mountain of equanimity. (coughs) Here in Taos, we have what is considered to be a sacred mountain. It's one amongst many uh, mountains that surround this Taos Valley. And this sacred mountain is actually within the Taos Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians that sits on the north edge of this town of Taos. And this particular mountain is also sacred, uh, it's sacred to the Tiwa people, and it's also a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. I have the good fortune to be able to look out at it and take it in, in every season, any time of the day or night if it's not too cloudy, any day of the year as it's very clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, any mountain, just sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain and 
hail fall on it, snow covers it, lightning strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it. All sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. And the mountain remains unshakable, unwavering. The mountain of radical acceptance, the mountain of impartiality, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is a live energy, a lively energy, but only exists in relationship to all of the myriad lively energies constantly changing energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't attached or averse to anything. We might say that it lets life live through itself, closing off to nothing, holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. And so we begin our exploration of upekka, Equanimity is a very powerful force in our practice, a powerful force in the whole of our life. In the Buddhist teachings, it's included in one of the, as one of the ten paramis, one of the ten perfections, and as one of the brahma-viharas, the divine abidings, metta, karuna, mudita, and equanimity, upekka as well as one of the seven factors of enlightenment, mindfulness, investigation of states, energy or effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And it's one of the two jhana factors that are present in the fourth jhana. Ikagata, one-pointedness, and upekka, equanimity. Upeka was the final factor to come into maturity before the Buddha attained full awakening, before he attained full enlightenment, as he sat under the Bodhi tree that now famous night. With an evenness and balance in his very relaxed and powerful presence, as though, as I already said, he were an immovable mountain as he sat there with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance, seeing things clearly and relinquishing letting go, relinquishing every attachment to all formations of body and mind, and then breaking through to the great awakening, breaking through 
to the complete ending of suffering. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the power, and the equilibrium of the mind, the heart, to experience all kinds of change. The fearlessness, the power, and the balance of heart and mind to experience every sort of manifestation and change in the realms of internal and external formations and in the realm of feeling, the pleasant or unpleasant feeling associated with the arising, changing, and passing of all internal and external formations. The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity, meaning equanimity in relationship to what comes in at each of the six sense doors, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind door. This six-limbed equanimity was described as the equanimity of one whose afflictive states or cankers as the Buddha often called them, have been destroyed. Destroyed temporarily, as happens in the deep concentration of jhana, or destroyed completely, destroyed finally, as occurs in the final completion of vipassana practice. One who abides in the natural state of purity in relationship to desirable, or undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. And some words from the Buddha. Here a bhikkhu, a yogi, a meditator, whose cankers are destroyed, is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She he dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness, great strength and ease of the mind, the heart, to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of upekka is on-looking. So equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by maintaining a neutral mode, by staying in the center, staying in the middle, watching things as they arise and as they pass. On-looking, it sees them fairly, without favoritism, without bias, without partiality. So one attribute of equanimity itself, as is described in the the realm of feeling, is as neither painful nor pleasant feeling. The function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. And so upekka manifests as neutrality. We could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or equilibrium between the opposing forces in the mind of the desired 
and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity offsets the weightiness of greed and aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The mind, the heart, doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember as a child that I loved to find that point of balance when I was playing on the seesaw or the teeter-totter, as we called it, with another child. Both of us suspended in our teeter-totter seat, perfectly balanced in mid-air. There was always a a certain uh, kind of happy and almost breathtaking feeling inside at the moments when, when this would happen. The poet uh, T.S. Eliot said it beautifully. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection, while at the same time being an experience of great spaciousness and strength of mind and heart. The Buddha used the metaphor of putting uh, a spoonful of salt in a cup of water. And because of the small container, the water will be extremely salty, very harsh, undrinkable. On the other hand, if we put uh, a spoonful of salt into a large a body of water the size, for instance, of the, the Rio Grande River, which is the largest river here in New Mexico, it, it, of course, won't have the same effect because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great spaciousness that the salt is put into. Life is quite salty at times, as we all know. It's just how it is. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of mind and heart with which we can meet and look on at all of life's everyday experiences, as well as all of the subtleties of internal and external phenomena that we come to see and know through our practice. To look on with balance, with equipoise, with what's often called the heart of greatness, with what in the suttas, in relationship to equanimity, is a factor of enlightenment, to look on with specific neutrality.
So what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, including at times, oh, I could list many of them, I'm not going to, but (laughs) 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 the other six enlightenment factors, um, uh, the various states arising with Uh, our concentration practice, patience, faith. So looking on at whatever states of consciousness are present, specific neutrality means that they are all met, all experienced and seen, looked on at evenly through the mind of equanimity, through the heart of equanimity. The function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. And so, Opeka manifests as neutrality. There's really a a wonderful little book of teachings from Zen Master Dogen with a commentary by Uchiyama Roshi called How to Cook Your Life, where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook, the Tenzo, and our relationship to food to teach us, in this case, about equanimity. And we, of course, can uh, bring this teaching immediately close, right here and right now, in relationship to our cook uh, and the food here in our retreat, our amazing uh, Tenzo uh, Surya. And, of course, we can also take it into our life when we're back home. And this is from Dogen. Handle even a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. He goes on, A dish is not necessarily superior because you've prepared it with choice ingredients, nor is a soup inferior because you've made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly with a pure mind, and without trying to evaluate their quality in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. And he goes on. In practicing the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same, and not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk, or the mouth of a yogi, is like an oven. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung, Now, of course, at the time of Dogen, they didn't uh, have natural gas or propane or electricity. So, uh, just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung for cooking without distinction, our mouths should be the same. There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive.
So how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to the capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? So a simple example in relationship to our practice. We sit and we find that the mind is tranquil, serene, calm, and this is known. And we recognize that the focusing power of the mind, concentration, is evenly and repeatedly connecting with the object. The mind isn't listless, nor is it agitated. But rather, it's interested and appropriately energized. At those times, there really isn't any interest in or necessity for exerting or restraining or encouraging the mind in any way. In our practice, just simply and clearly recognizing and knowing without attachment that this is what is occurring, very important without attachment, that this is what is occurring, that these factors of mind are in place for a brief or maybe for a longer period of time is actually something that contributes to the blossoming of the state or the factor of equanimity, thus contributing to our capacity to relate to all things, all phenomena, with equipoise and composure. During the time in the culture of the Buddha, his metaphor for the mind, when it's in this mode, was this. One is like a charioteer who looks with equanimity on horses progressing evenly. Well, more likely in our case, the metaphor might be one is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity in a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. We're able to see and to know to take in what's in front of us and what's passing by and take it in with ease. This quality, this factor of mind, allows the process of practice, the development of concentration, and the progress of insight to enfold without getting caught, without getting mired in the habits of mind that can stop things up such as the various habits of clinging and attachment and identification that can create a block, a tangle in the flow of the process. Within the ambiance of equanimity, even the subtlety of the habits of attachment, identification, aversion, and the comparing mind can be seen, known, and let go of. 
allowing concentration to blossom, deepen, and eventually to mature. As we practice, we begin to taste equanimity along with the arising of the other wholesome mental states such as patience, confidence, metta, along with vichara, piti, sukha, ikagata. And as each of you know, until equanimity is really truly matured, we can lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago, uh, for the whole of the last two weeks of a a very long retreat that I was sitting, I I practiced equanimity. I practiced it in the way uh, that it's practiced as a Brahma-vihara, as one of the sublime abidings, silently repeating one equanimity phrase over and over again, Um, first directing it to myself, and then on through all of the same categories that are used for metta practice. And the phrase that I used was, I am the heir of my kama, meaning the heir of all of my deeds, all of my actions of mind, speech, and body. My happiness or suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. By the end of those two weeks, there was quite a a deep and quiet sense of balance, evenness, and neutrality in the heart and mind. A day or two before the end of the retreat, because this happened right towards the end of the retreat, the thought came up, ah, there's equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. And then the next thought was, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. (laughs) Well, and I went on thinking. If this was a Zen session, session or Zen retreat, a good, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat. And Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then the thoughts disappeared. Well, later that day, I was startled in true Vipassana fashion, an equanimity test uh, Vipassana style. I got a note signed by one of my equanimity teachers, but actually the note was actually from all five of the teachers who were teaching that retreat. And it said, we would like you to give the dana talk, the generosity talk, to the yogis tomorrow. Well, that was startling. I was, at that point, not teaching. I was not yet teaching the Dhamma. Even if I had been, it would have been startling. (laughs) So, for a moment, equanimity really flew right out the window. (laughs) And my heart felt like it stopped. And the old habit of fear flew in the window. I can't, I can't do this now said my old habit. I've been silent for too many months and so deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of all my fellow yogis and speak. It's impossible. I can't do it. 
And then the heart, the mind relaxed and saw what had just occurred. And the thought came in, ah, this is my equanimity test, of course. (laughs) And I can do it. And I want to do it. And at that moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude came into the mind and the heart. Gratitude for the teachers, for the retreat center staff, for the teachings, for the practice, for the Buddha. And just as suddenly as it had gone, equanimity was back. What I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to be doing. Until Upeka has matured, we lose and we gain the balance and the equipoise of equanimity over and over again. Upeka manifests as quieting fear, boredom, dislike, resentment, and the self-judgment that can manifest as guilt or disapproval or not being good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking and pride, attachment, and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, me, my experiences. Equanimity also manifests in quieting the attachment and fear that comes up in relationship to others. When equanimity has arisen and and is developing, in those moments fear, resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval and disapproval subside. With the clear space of a momentary or longer true neutrality, there's nothing for greed and aversion to stick to when and if they arise. Equanimity fails when it produces what is called the equanimity of unknowing, which the Buddha called worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. So what does this mean? Worldly-minded indifference. It occurs when we don't clearly see or see through the object of our attention with the focused attention of a concentrated mindfulness and investigation rooted in kind-heartedness. And instead are blindly seduced by and swept away in the happenings of life, in the happenings in our meditation practice. Seemingly, seemingly equanimous with it all. This isn't upekkha. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in or produced by ignorance. And some words from the Buddha. On seeing a visible visible object with the eye or in relationship to contact through any of the six sense doors, equanimity arises in the foolish, 
infatuated ordinary man or woman. In the untaught ordinary woman or man who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, meaning karma or kama, who is unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually worldly-minded indifference based in ignorance. The Buddha was um, quite wonderfully direct, straightforward, and very succinct in his teachings. didn't mince words. <clears throat> so, a brief personal story. <clears throat> when I first began living here in Taos, <clears throat> quite a number of years ago now, um, I quickly noticed actually before I started living here, that there were so many beautiful handcrafted things in the store windows. And at times I was quite infatuated with what I was seeing. And uh, sometimes even getting caught in the delusion of needing, seemingly I needed what I was seeing. Very painful contraction of the must-have mind. You know, we all know that. So I decided to make a practice for myself. So I practiced walking along the road, the street, uh, and looking in the windows and watching the process of my mind. It took quite a while doing this. I mean, I didn't do it every day, but I did it regularly. And eventually it came to being able to just appreciate the beauty of what I was seeing with great appreciation for the amazing creative capacity of the human beings that created this beauty. It was a very interesting practice. The Dalai Lama tells a story uh, about himself passing um, various shops. Someone took him to a place where they Uh, there were various shops that sell all kinds of tiny mechanical parts. And this friend took him there because he knew that he was very uh, particularly interested in this, and it was kind of a fascination of his. And he talks about his strong inner feeling as he was looking into these shop windows with all these little mechanical parts. He said, of wanting them all. And then he said he realized that he didn't even know what they were for. He just wanted them. (laughs) I'm sure that every one of us have experienced the pretense of equanimity within ourselves in the midst of greed or dislike or boredom or resentment, anger, fear, disappointment. The kind of glossing over the ignorance, the ignoring these states and pretending to ourselves the pretense of equanimity, the it doesn't really matter attitude or oh it's all really just fine attitude or 
I'm totally okay attitude. Accompanied maybe by a slight or maybe not so slight moving away or contraction or inner sense of grasping that we might not be aware of. This, of course, is not equanimity, but is actually indifference. The near enemy of equanimity, indifference. Indifference masquerading as upekka. And I'm sure that every one of us knows from our own experience that when we're inflamed with greed or dislike or fear or grief or resentment, it's extremely difficult or it just isn't possible to look on at those moments with a really true equanimity. Upeka is based on an attentive, clear presence of mind, not on dullness and indifference. It's not a kind of casual passing mood, and it's not produced by exertion. It's the result, it's one of the fruits of our practice, the fruit of training the mind, training the heart, through the development and blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, concentration, a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, loving-kindness, compassion, and investigation. A true equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life, these flip-flops that we encounter in our mind in relationship to what are called the eight worldly winds. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction and disrepute or disrespect or disregard. These eight worldly winds that come our way throughout our life. True equanimity is able to meet all of these sometimes what feel like harsh tests and is quickly able to regenerate its strength from our inner resources. The resources that have been developed through our diligent practice. <clears throat> and from the Buddha, from the Sutta Nipata, develop the mind of equilibrium you will always be getting praise and blame, but do not let either affect the poise of the mind. Follow the calmness, the absence of pride. There's an amazing practice um, that was, as I've been told, uh, and maybe is still occasionally, practiced by the uh, Hopi Indians. I don't recommend this practice, but we can take it as a metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and manifestation of the power of fearlessness, evenness of heart and mind, and the protection 
that one uh, uh, that that is one of the really great strengths of equanimity. And this is from the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. <coughs> there were all kinds of snakes. Rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60, all tangled on the floor. The stinging, the singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved slowly toward an old man singing with his eyes closed, climbed up on his crossed legs, coiled in front of his breech cloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their heads to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. This is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and a wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, the heart, getting seduced by and caught up in states of fear, greed, and aversion. And will also possess the power of renewing itself only if it's really deeply rooted in a growing insight into the true nature of things. There are two particular understandings that I'd like to spend just a little bit of time exploring with you this evening, in that as they develop along the way of our practice and eventually ripen into understanding, into insight, are the root of equanimity. And the first of these is our growing clarity and understanding in how the vicissitudes, the ups and downs, the eight worldly winds of life, how they originate, how they come to be. And this is the understanding of kama, or in Sanskrit, karma. The understanding that the various experiences of stress, of suffering, and the experiences of ease are the result of our kama. The result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now in this lifetime, and on back and back and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We're born, we spring out of the womb of Kama. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we're undeniably the heirs of our Kama. 
So for instance, just as soon as we've spoken words or as soon as we've performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet, in some way, it remains with us. In some way, it inevitably returns to us as our due inheritance. We could say that everything that happens and the ease or dis-ease in our mind, our heart, is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings in life, internally and externally. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this lifetime in any given moment is due to our own mind, our motivations, and our responses or reactions to phenomena. Not due to our hopes and wishes for ourselves, And not due to some other person or some outer or antagonistic or seemingly strange or foreign world. As this understanding begins to take root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so is really the first basis of equanimity. When, in fact, with everything that happens around us, And within us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves. We really only meet our own mind. What is there to fear? The heart, the mind, begins to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. That in fact we're not trapped on the karmic wheel running around and around and around like a gerbil. But of course, as we've all experienced, fear, uncertainty, and insecurity arise along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled, is through our good deeds. Refuge from this particular perspective is in wholesome thought, wholesome motivations, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions. And as we take this refuge, there comes to really be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of the good deeds we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some particular hardship in our current life. And our practice, our practice itself, this incredible training of the heart and mind is a very good deed the best really and it's the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspects of our life
one of the things that's been important for me in understanding kama is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. And some of us have probably been conditioned, well, it's just too late. Sorry, too bad, it's too late. Well, it's never too late. And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. It becomes a refuge, really. And at some point, we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in our mind, in our heart, the mind becomes more tranquil and more serene. And we gain the strength of a patient heart and the evenness and the balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole. Along the way of our practice, with the development and blossoming of a relative equanimity, we find that we have the strength to endure when we need to endure and to see clearly when that's what's called for. We have the possibility of not continuing to blindly fall into the same holes over and over again, but to begin to walk down a different street. The understanding of kama can imbue us with a powerful motivation to free ourselves from kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering. As we more and more clearly see our own craving and delusion and our habitual tendencies to create and engage in situations that strain and sap our strength and sap our healthy resistance. A wholesome disgust, as the Buddha called it, (laughs) arises. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and from delusion is strengthened. The fruit of the deliverance of a deep and clear experience and understanding of equanimity is the escape from greed. And the Pali word is tanha. And it's often described as insatiable thirst. The escape from insatiable thirst. So the first insight that is the basis of equanimity is a growing understanding of kama. The second insight that equanimity is based on (coughs) is the teaching and understanding of anatta, not self. From this perspective, there's no one, no self, 
performing any deeds. Nor do the results affect any self. The fact is, the truth is, that it's the delusion of a separate, solid self, a separate me that creates suffering and disturbs equanimity. If we claim ownership, meaning this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, and we solidly claim ownership that way, the vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of of suffering. So for instance, if this or that aspect of our personality some particular quality of ours is criticized or blamed. One thinks, I am blamed. And equanimity is shaken. When we receive approval or praise for something that we've done, one thinks, I'm, I've been praised. I'm a success. Equanimity is disturbed. If this or that work that we've done doesn't succeed and isn't praised in the way that we want it to be. One thinks, my work has failed. I have failed. And equanimity is shaken. If wealth or a loved one is lost, one thinks, what's mine is gone. And equanimity is shaken. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken in the delusion of identification of me, mine, I am. As understanding deepens and the heart opens, there's an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. Unshakable Equanimity is established by giving up, by relinquishing all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mine, which that thought itself may be quite a daunting thought. And so we begin with the small things from which it's easy to detach oneself and gradually working up to the possessions and goals and identifications that we so tenaciously cling to. The first time that I taught at the Forest Refuge at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts was for two months, and I was the first visiting teacher there. And I was there long enough to um, really settle in And yet again and again, there was the awareness that the house that I was staying in wasn't mine. And it came about in small, simple, and sometimes surprising ways. When I first got there, there was no telephone in the house. And it was difficult. So I lobbied for a phone, which in moments felt like it was for me. There was quite a degree of tension, uh, uh, stress in this getting my phone. But in truth, the phone was for the many, many others uh, who would be using the same house over many years. 
And at one point, I was told that it was okay, that a phone would be uh, put in the house. But when that would happen was unknown. (laughs) So, at that point, there was a quick letting go. Actually, really no more thoughts about it occurred after a very short while. And I relaxed. And I truly felt that it it didn't matter if the phone would arrive while I was still staying in the house or not. Because it wasn't for me. It wasn't mine. And then it was decided to purchase a rug for the living room of the house. I was the first person to live in that house, so... Jeannie, the housekeeper, um, brought over the rug catalog for us to decide which rug to order. It certainly wasn't a rug for me. That was very clear, because it wasn't my house. So we were choosing for anyone. We were choosing for everyone. And I noticed that there was such a, a different experience in the heart with this, with this choosing for everyone. Not the subtle contraction of something being mine, something being for me. There was an openness, a spaciousness. No contraction, no clinging in the choosing, and it was a lot more fun that way. So the small things first that we think are ours, and then working up or working up to giving up or letting go or relinquishing other stickier thoughts of self. Beginning to relinquish the identification with some of the qualities that we're identified with as who we think we are. Our personality. It's the thought of these being who I am that we relinquish the clinging thought of these being who I am, that we give up, that we let go. So beginning with maybe small aspects of our personality. I mean, we still have the same personality, but it's letting go of thinking, this is me. It might weaken some of those qualities, actually. So we start with the small aspects, qualities of seeming minor importance, and very slowly through our practice, working up to letting go of identification, practicing detachment in relationship to those emotions and aversions that we might regard as the very center of our being. Ajahn Sumedho, the former abbot of the Amaravati Monastery in England, shares a really wonderful way of practicing with this. When a particular habitual tendency of his shows up, in this case he's talking about the critical mind, he says, oh, there's my personality. (laughs) Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am, being me, even including positive emotions, or aversions and specific gifts with which, which we might regard, be identified with as the very center of our being. <clears throat> to whatever degree we abandon, relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of I am, 
to whatever degree we forsake thoughts of self, equanimity will enter our heart. When we realize, when we really truly come to know anything as void of a self, in those moments, how could it cause any agitation due to lust or hatred or fear or grief? Thus the teaching and the practice of anatta is an important guide along the path to perfect equanimity. Equanimity, the unshakable balance of mind, of heart, is rooted in insight. The first understanding, the first insight being that of kama and the second being anatta. Equanimity is also seated and grows along the way of our samatha practice and blossoms in quite a profound way as the deeper states of concentration, jhana, occur. So I'd like to share just a little bit uh, about this in some specifics. There's a lot that could be said, but we're just going to look at it a little bit. So with the first jhana, vitaka, piti, and ikagata, one-pointedness, are present. And the five hindrances have completely disappeared. And there's a, quite an intense unified bliss in the, in the mind, in the heart. The ability to form unwholesome intentions ceases. So equanimity is beginning to show up. The second jhana, sukha, ikagata, ikagata, and a little bit of piti at the beginning are there. But really, mostly it's sukha and ikagata. And mindfulness, by the way, is part of all of this. Absolutely must be present, mindfulness. And in the second jhana, the ability to form wholesome intentions ceases as well. So the thinking isn't... You can't think about that. It doesn't happen. The third jhana, again with mindfulness included with all of these, sukha and ikagata are there. And one half of bliss or the piti uh, disappears. The joy of the piti experience disappears. In the fourth jhana, there are two qualities. Upekka, equanimity, and ikagata, one-pointedness. And as you can see, each one, there's less of the intrusions, we could say. So there is some equanimity developing. The fourth jhana, it is equanimity and one-pointedness that is there. And the other half of bliss, the happiness, the sukha, disappears. So it leads to a state that is neither pleasant nor painful, which the Buddha said is actually, which those that have experienced it also know, is a very, it's very subtle, but it's a form of happiness. Very much more subtle and sublime than piti and sukha. 
In the fourth jhana, the purity, it's considered to contain the purity of equanimity and mindfulness. Neither pleasure nor pain, as I've already said. There's a permeating in the body, although the body's often not, uh, there's often none, uh, no awareness of body, but there's a permeating of a pure, bright awareness in the heart, the mind, and the body, even though the body is um, not really part of one's consciousness at that point. A very pure, bright awareness that pervades And in the commentaries, uh, it says, Just as a man were sitting wrapped from head to toe with a white cloth so that there would be no part of his body or mind to which the white cloth did not extend, even so the monk or the nun or the layperson sits permeating his body and mind and heart with a pure, bright awareness. There is nothing of his entire body, mind, or heart, unpervaded by pure, bright awareness. And that's the fourth jhana. So this this experience of equanimity in the fourth jhana, profound experience, mindfulness is considered to be perfected due to equanimity in the fourth jhana. And it's a remarkable uh, experience of simple spaciousness and acceptance and an extreme level of imperturbability. And it's by far... uh, Uh, very much the most restful of all of the jhana experiences. So that's uh, an important aspect of the development of equanimity (coughs) for some people. The unshakable balance of a mind and heart of equanimity is cultivated and develops along the way of our samatha practice, along the way of our concentration practice. The heart, the mind of specific neutrality, equanimity, isn't cold, it isn't heartless, it isn't dull, and it doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness, but really out of a fullness or a completeness of connection and understanding. And at some point along the way of our practice, equanimity will develop from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity. In the progress of insight, when equanimity is strong and fulfilled, mature, concentration and insider understanding occur coupled together without either one exceeding the other, along with an imbalance 
with all of the other factors of enlightenment. And at that point, there's insight knowledge into the dangers of the afflictive emotions, the dangers of the defilements, and insight knowledge into the advantages of purification. And at that point, at this point in practice, insight or understanding produces what the Buddha called a satisfiedness, a purifiedness, and a clarifiedness within one, which is manifesting due to one's capacity for on-looking equanimity. And the Buddha spoke about this as absolute equanimity or unworldly or holy equanimity. And in the Buddha's words, just as all the streams of the world enter the great ocean and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but not an increase or decrease of the great ocean is seen, such is the nature of holy equanimity. A beautiful description that I found, uh, and I don't remember where I found it, but of the liberated mind, the liberated heart, the mind and heart of six-limbed equanimity, I'd like to share it with you. The mind and heart of an awakened one is like a clear, well-cut crystal. And because it's clear, without stains, it fully absorbs all the rays of light and sends them out again, intensified by the power and purity of its concentrated energy. The crystal can't be tainted by the colors of the rays. Its hardness can't be pierced. Its perfectly harmonious structure can't be disturbed. In its purity and strength, the the crystal remains unchanged. And in less poetic language, the equanimity of an awakened one is unshakable because it's absolute. It's absolute simply because it clings to nothing. And this is our possibility. And so we practice. Here in retreat and at home in the midst of our daily lives. We practice with sincerity and with diligence. As awakening beings, we practice with aspiration and determination. And because of all of this, it's inevitable that concentration, mindfulness, and all of the wholesome factors of mind and heart, as well as the liberating insights, will sprout, blossom, and eventually mature within us. It's our kama, we could say. So I'd like to close the talk 
with um, two short pieces from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When her or his mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to him, to her? And the second piece from the Udana. For one who clings, motion exists, in this case meaning the movement of the mind. For one who clings, motion exists, but for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor any place betwixt the two. This, in truth, is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.